The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Provoke Podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman in Hong Kong, as usual, and I'm really happy to be joined today by Isabella Steger, who is the Deputy Bureau Chief for Quartz in Asia. Isabella, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And I'm also at home, nowhere to go. Yeah, nowhere to go. It's um, it's quite a difficult situation right now in Hong Kong with our third wave. I feel like, I'm not sure, the world is not really, I don't think, that aware of, of obviously what goes on here, but I feel like we're kind of ahead in some respects, um, but also behind in some respects too. I mean, nobody here is going on holiday. No, no one can go on holiday here. I mean, when you see, you see people in Europe going on holiday all the time, how does that make you feel? Um, a friend of mine had posted a picture from the south of France yesterday, like they usually live in London and a bit jealous I guess but also like I have friends who also have traveled between Paris and London they're just like oh it's not great that they're so lax about this and there's no checks or anything but on the other hand really just like couldn't stay anymore in like the same place in England so just have to like take your own precautions and you know rent a car or something instead of spreading germs through the train. Yeah it's it's the option isn't it I'm you know I'm, I'm not sure if I find the the idea of cross-border travel just a bit disturbing right now, but it's really hard when you're stuck in Hong Kong. I mean, just having the option of going somewhere would be great. There's, um, you're sorry, you're nodding furiously. <laughs> it's, it's not an easy place. No restaurants, like, even if you were to, like, take a few days off or something, like, what would you do? Yeah, that's the, the big... Um, Big news, and well, it's not the big news in Hong Kong, but one of the big news items in Hong Kong is uh, the restaurant ban. No, all restaurants have been shut down. Um, I think one of these ideas the Hong Kong government comes up with that uh, wasn't good on paper and was even worse in practice. Yep. Um, sort of did it without really emulating of the protection measures that like people in Europe had of like you know paying staff to not work during that period and that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, no, no, no wage relief, or rental relief, or any of that stuff. Um, so, Isabella, let's talk a little bit about your work. So, you you are, of course, deputy bureau chief for Asia at Quartz, um, where you've been for four years. Uh, before that, you spent almost six years with the Wall Street Journal, where you were a reporter and then an editor um, for the Asia News Desk. Uh, you also spent nine months at South China Morning Post. Um, I, I find the best journalists only spend nine months at the South China Morning Post on, on the business desk. I did too. Um, and most importantly, of course, you started your career uh, as an account executive at Finsbury. Um, so, so forget about all the journalism stuff. I mean, that clearly, for, for, for our audience at least, is, is, uh, is the highlight of your career to date. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about this. That unusual career trajectory. Well, it is quite unusual, actually. I mean, there aren't many people that go from public relations agency um, to the media. I actually went from SEMP to a PR agency and then back to the media, but you went 
you went straight from PR agency to the media. Was was uh, did you did you not enjoy your your year long stint at Finsbury? It was in London. Yeah, um, I really wanted to be in the media, and I guess PR is adjacent to that. Like when you're a graduate, which is what I was at the time, it's just um, also just trying to find something. It was the financial crisis, which, you know, was very, very deeply felt in the UK, particularly in the city. And a lot of people who were coming out of uh, uni in my year were just lucky to have a job. And, you know, even in the best of times, it's not super easy to find a job in media in the UK anyway. And, um, you know, it was nice to, like, have a job. And it was actually through the WPP graduate program. And... You know, that whole process was very challenging and interesting to go through that in and of itself. And, you know, when you're young, I think mm. it's fine to just try something new and learn things that I still find useful today, actually. So, yeah, no regrets about having done mm. that. Mm. Um, but anyway, the PR world's loss, I guess, was um, the journalism world's gain. Um you now, clearly, you have a regional editorial job at Quartz. Um, but what does that look like uh, in the midst of a pandemic? Mm. Yeah, this year's been obviously uh, very just, I think, taking each day as it comes. And like you said earlier, we're kind of ahead in terms of where the pandemic was. And actually, you know, we were both in Switzerland at Davos at the same time in January. And we chatted a bit about this before that we had been reading about this thing that was unfolding in China at the time. And obviously people in Hong Kong were worried because of the proximity and because of SARS. And I felt a bit like I'm thinking about this thing, but nobody else who was at Davos was paying any attention to it. And I remember getting on uh, the plane in Zurich and, you know, some of the you know Asian passengers were like wearing face masks. And I was thinking, oh, I'm getting like flashbacks to what it was like during SARS. And, um, you know, we were ahead and we were writing all these stories about things like, oh, you know, the R number and like just basic science about coronaviruses and all that stuff. And, you know, I felt a little bit like people were screaming into a void in Asia. Like, you know, how how is the U.S. like just repeating these same mistakes? Like, have they not read anything that we've written? And, you know, this is across the board for like all media organizations, I think. And it, you know, sort of speaks to that perennial challenge of sort of getting Asia regional stories um, heard outside of um, this region, I guess. And I hope that that tendency improves after this pandemic, where it's obvious that, you know, people should have watched what was happening in Korea or Hong Kong or China much earlier than they were, not thinking that it was something that wasn't going to hit them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so it, it it's, make, it's, it's certainly disconcerting um but how hard does it make your actual life as a journalist because i would imagine that you're reliant to some degree on travel yeah i used to travel a fair bit um i have a remit that covers korea japan i spent a lot of time in taiwan just because it's close and fun and there was a lot of stuff happening there these last few years so since january so the last trip i took was to switzerland um and yeah, it's hard to be in front of your computer all the time. On the other hand, everyone is in the same situation. And honestly, I think that the learning curve of the coronavirus, the science-based journalism was so difficult that it really was just, you know, 
tunnel vision, like full focus every day, reading the science, like listening to experts on podcasts and just trying to get to grips with it, doing, you know, a public service that was accurate and wasn't, you know, luckily I haven't done anything that I look back and like, oh, I, I, you know, I wished I hadn't written that, you know, stuff like, oh, face masks are not useful or anything like that. Um, so it was, yeah, it's like, it's a very unique once in a lifetime situation to not travel, but like be in a very high intensity, but also like challenging, uh, reporting situation, I think. Mm. Do you find that you're, there are more stories to cover now? Um, because I, you know, I, I know that two of the areas that you are quite focused on are geopolitics and the future of work. Um, it's it, this is it's been a big year for both of those, I suppose. Yeah, it's always a bit difficult with us. I mean, quartz uh, specifically, if people are familiar with our work, in that we don't write like the news per se. You know, we're not competing mm. with the BBC or the Wires or something, and you know, we don't really um, do X thing happened sort of story. Um, it doesn't serve us in terms of traffic and it doesn't really, um, it doesn't advance, you know, our journalism or like our brand or anything. So yes, there is a lot of news, but that it's very challenging to come up with our own angle and, you know, our own headline that's different to everybody else's. And we do spend a lot of time workshopping and brainstorming that kind of thing so it doesn't always mean that just because it's busy you know it's like the volume is high and you know the stories just roll in you still have to go through like a very I think special and rigorous process here to come to what story are you going to write and often we don't write anything because we're not going to compete against CNN and Politico and all these other geopolitics focused publications. Mm. Um, and with that in mind, have you found that the, I mean, just the sheer kind of deluge, I guess, of news stories, whether it's about the trade war, um, whether it's about what the future of work looks like, um, has that helped in terms of, I guess, uh, has that benefited the kind of journalism that Quartz produces or has it not actually had that much of an impact? Um, I think it, uh, it definitely forces you, I think, to, like I said earlier, like be rigorous and choosy about what you do right. And, you know, it is easy to fall into a trap of just like, oh, this stuff is happening, let's write something. Um, but actually, you mentioned all that stuff like geopolitics, but what really is the focus for us this year is actually the Hong Kong stuff still. Mm-hmm. Um, and that okay. in itself is a big, like, daily, um, almost daily news story. But the same thing applies. Like, you know, we cannot... And we're actually very small. Like, we haven't talked much about our structure, but we're actually only four people in Asia, two writers and two editors. Um, but I also write sometimes. So, you know, we're also constrained to a large extent by our size and overall, even global, we're not a big company. You know, we went through a restructuring recently and just like many other news companies, not just digital, even like the legacy companies. So to a large extent, our ability to produce is also constrained by that. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what you just mentioned, you know, the Hong Kong situation um, you're a Hong Konger. Um, ha- have you been surprised at how quickly things have moved here? Yeah, I was thinking actually last night before coming on here what 
I might say, and I sort of got my break or, you know, cut my teeth on the 2014 Umbrella Movement protests. And, you know, it was this two-month or three-month period where it was like every day was go, go, go. And, you know, as you know, there was this long lull of, what, four years or something. And I think after that, everybody was sort of a bit at a loss. Oh, when are we ever going to get a story like that again? You know, when, when will people ever, like, pay attention? And so in a way, it's sort of bizarre, like, how quickly the story, not quickly, but how when it did come back, it was with such a vengeance and, you know, it's still going. Um, yeah, I guess I am surprised, but I guess the nature of all these, like, major geopolitical events are always that you have to be um, prepared that they are going to take you by surprise and that they're unpredictable and well to an extent now I think that it's predictable in the sense that this is a long-haul situation it's not self-contained like the umbrella movement was and it's touching on almost every aspect of life here and is now you know amplified into the international geopolitical arena in the way that the umbrella movement didn't really so it is yeah it's an all-consuming story and not just for me but you know people in this industry in all bureaus around the world i think have interest in it or have an angle in it yeah i mean that's what has really surprised me is actually how hong kong has has become this kind of flashpoint from a global perspective um just in terms of the way you're you know you're seeing you the measures from the u.s and and you're seeing companies in Hong Kong having to, to choose sides. Um, what do you think of the, the way that the situation here is being covered from overseas? Um, I know that's quite a, a broad spectrum, um, but are there any kind of, of particular lessons there that you've, you've found? I think it's improved a lot. I think that, you know, people... Yeah don't really have that much like stuff like one country two systems and the basic law and just the general sort of history it's extremely complicated right like the situation in hong kong is not like any other and i think people always like to reach for historical analogies right so like oh is it like east berlin is it like mm. you know south korea in the 80s or taiwan in the 80s or you know more recently people look to Ukraine for comparisons but obviously none of these are perfect comparisons and they never will be because the history and the setup that we have with China that relationship is just you know it hadn't happened anywhere else and it was like a unique experiment you know how do you have a place that's semi-free housed within a country that's extremely authoritarian um so I think that people took a long time to get to grips with that, but it was also a story that people really wanted to get to grips with. And I think a lot about how, you know, the Xinjiang Uyghur story had been sort of brewing for years, but it's really only in the last few weeks, I think, that people like paid so much attention to it. I think some of the sort mm. of genocide comparisons and, you know, op-ed pieces and stuff really helped. But, you know, Hong Kong is, I guess, less repressive than that. And it's captured the international attention in a way that's much quicker and much starker than, you know, a lot of other human rights um, situations in the world have. And that's just the way it is, I guess. It's just a city that's open and people have attachments to it. And, yeah, I think that I think it's good like that people have improved a lot in terms of, you know, how they write about Hong Kong and you know, you see a bit mm -hmm. sort of that, um, 
you know, like people in Taiwan complain all the time about how, oh, people just get basic facts wrong about Taiwan. And it's because it's always written by someone who's like a Beijing based person or someone who has China history, but not really the periphery of China. And I think there's an awareness that like that needs to get better and that people are, you know, setting high expectations of that sort of journalism. Mm. And and how about on social media? Because that it's kind of blown me away how Hong Kong has kind of become, you know, almost like an empty vessel in some respects. For, for you know, depending on how people are, uh, depending on what their stance is and what they believe in, you know, you you see Hong Kong being used in all sorts of different ways online. Is is that just is that just a byproduct of the kind of debate you get in social media? You know, to an extent, I think Hong Kongers knew how to capitalize on that. They knew what like mm. international eyeballs wanted. The imagery, um, beginning from that massive, you know, million or two million person march um, a year ago in June. Um, not obviously, nobody knew that many people were going to show up. But I think that people here, you know, what people here are like, sort of very quick to respond and very um, resourceful and innovative, and you know, just coming up with so much. Um, promotional materials in terms of like posters or cartoons or like memes or artwork and songs and that kind of stuff and you know they really knew mm. how to grasp that and also you know we have the internet to use um, you know in a way that people in mainland China like we're not really able to for example and a network of people who live overseas like Hong Kong people in the UK or the US you know they're everywhere and they also mobilize very quickly I think to spread that story and you know this is an age of authoritarianism that's rising all around the world and i guess mm. to some extent like the story of somebody you know a small populace sort of taking on this huge goliath resonated with people everywhere like the philippines ukraine you know other parts of eastern europe south america even and now in the us so it doesn't surprise me in some ways but you know the the longevity and the strength of it um does surprise me mm. it's just weird though that i feel you know we've ended up i say we the the protest movement here has ended up with them um, kind of unlikely bedfellows in some respects you know re very right-wing republican politicians are are very keen on on the hong kong protests for whatever reasons and yet um they're the first people to to send in the the troops in Portland or, or wherever, um, you know, it's it's a strange set of circumstances. Yeah, I try to read a lot of books or just read widely in general of like the history of other sorts of protest movements or authoritarian regimes or you know the U.S. involvement in different countries around the world. I mean, Central America, Iran, whatever. And I guess it's just like a it's a necessity, right? And people sort of make alliances, you know, history is full of weird alliances between people that you would never think could ever, you know, come together until, of course, you have a common enemy. And, you know, it is, it's exhausting reading a lot of the discussion on Twitter, you know, sort of the leftist, rightist mm -hmm. um, arguments. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Um, the kind of thing that, you know, I, as somebody whose job is to read and write and sort of think about things all the time, didn't really think about before. And now, Hong Kongers who probably like, you know, six months ago had no idea who all these like US senators were and now have to <laughs> know their names and, you know, come to understand the US election cycle and now all these UK politicians. Like it's a lot to take in and people often joke like, oh, you know, being in Hong Kong is like, you know, a full time job of just like 
knowing about stuff in the world in a way that if you're in the US, you know, you don't really have to, you know, I, I don't no. feel, yeah, like a Portland protester is not really spending their time, like, just thinking about how they can, like, make international connections and all that. Um, but also, you know, I don't know, like, mm. Twitter is not really the real world, and I think that maybe both of us should spend mm. less time on it, and yeah, maybe actually on a more macro level, it doesn't really matter that much, but I think, yeah, one of the big talking points is just, like, where is, like, the global left on this and why is it that the right I guess or the conservatives you know even in the UK now much more recently have really taken on this issue um to the top of their agendas in a way that maybe more left-leaning people haven't yeah it's interesting I mean look first of all I think I totally agree we should we should spend less time on Twitter um it's exhausting um but yeah, this this whole debate about the global left is an interesting one. I've tried not to, personally, I've tried not to engage in it too much because it's exhausting. Um, but it is, it does seem a little odd that we find ourselves on, uh, or at least the protest movement in Hong Kong finds itself on, on um, at loggerheads with with people that it would perhaps have considered its allies. Um, what do you make of? Uh, of the the impact on corporates, I don't know if this is something you've thought about much, but you know we've we've seen companies in Hong Kong, HSBC, Standard Chartered in particular, and, and others having to come out uh, in support of the national security law. Um, do do you feel that's a risky move for them, or or is that just the, the price of doing business now? I think I think of HSBC in the same way that I guess I think of Hong Kong to use the cliche the borrowed time borrowed place sort of. Yeah, that sort of analogy and that it has all this historical baggage, it's been riding on, you know, its legacy and its British roots to do business. But, you know, the time was always going to come when I think a company like that especially had to pick, I guess. And I think more broadly what's happening is that there's a lot of these um, residual elements of that sort of colonial era that are still functioning and very powerful and influential here and that doesn't really sit well with you know if you look at broadly what's happening in China sort of the partyification of everything why why would a major western multinational like that not have to be um you know judged by the same yardstick and perhaps it is just that the time for them has come and and it applies to other companies too like Swire and Jardines and and what about the Hong Kong tycoons? You know, well, they're locals. Well, they're locals, but they're also an elite that sort of came through that sort of colonial system. And are they are they truly loyal? You know, people talk about Li Ka-shing a lot, obviously, very rich man, but himself also not immune to these criticisms. You know, are you really loyal? Are you Chinese enough? You know, do you actually secretly support the protesters? Just so many questions that people constantly have to answer and things that they have to perform to just like yeah show their loyalty and if you but if you look north to what's happening on the mainland it shouldn't be surprising at all actually no do you do you expect this to happen perhaps to american companies though as well you know because they are they are all very i mean many of them are very invested in doing business in the mainland um and if they're having gonna you know if they are forced into making these kinds of choices it could be quite uncomfortable for them yeah, you know, like I said, in history, you know, there's so many analogies. And I guess I think about things like the South Africa boycott or something or Myanmar or something like that, you know, and it's human rights have in the past 
been, have swayed public opinion to then force governments or companies to change their behavior in certain countries. Uh, obviously, goes without saying, China is a very different ball game just because of its size and its um, role and its influence in the economy. It is not those two countries that I just mentioned. So it's not a great analogy, but you know it's interesting now the way that the um, forced labor issue in Xinjiang has really snowballed in the last few weeks. It's not inconceivable to me that more and more people might, you know, expect better from like a Nike or an Adidas or something in terms of just their supply chain issues. Um, and the other element of that is, of course, this whole realization during the pandemic that a lot of people are way too reliant on China for things like drugs or, you know, other things that you make, um, things that you need out of, just like anything, really. It's all sort of centralized in China. And then against that, this broader, I guess anti-China turn, especially in the US. So I think there is momentum towards something for companies to choose sides and maybe like the company to follow is the NBA. And I don't know if you just saw this morning, there was this investigation that ESPN put out about abuses by NBA or Chinese coaches that were at NBA training camps mm-hmm. in China and how they abused players. And some of the um, NBA people talked about being like, watched and surveilled when they were in Xinjiang where they had a camp earlier. Um, it's yeah. interesting to me that the NBA has sort of become this like um, litmus test, I guess, for a lot of China things that it never thought it would find itself in. Mm. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? They, they, you can, I think for many businesses, they just view, have viewed China as just this passive market of consumers, which is quite a naive um, mindset perhaps um, although one I guess that was encouraged um, you know 15 to 20 years ago uh, in terms of, of bringing them in um, okay so one of the other areas I've noticed that you do cover is the future of work um, and that looks like it's up for a lot of debate right now given everything that's happened um, with COVID-19. I wonder if you have drawn any kind of conclusions um, as to how that's going to change uh, from what we've seen. Are we talking more working from home, hybrid, um, will, or will it just go back to, to, to the way things were? So we just, our company have now gone remote. Um, well, New York mm. is a little bit different. There's still a physical office, but nobody in New York is like going to go back to the office for a very long time. And this is across the board. Other media companies have said the same. And Google, I think, also is not supposed to be going back until the summer of 2021. So, you know, I think in the US, it, there's a much clearer realization that it's a semi-permanent state. But in Asia, where I think about work and those issues a lot, I think in Hong Kong, it's, I don't know, I think th- this pandemic is like changing so many things and you know, people are rethinking things like transportation or childcare. But here, there's not really much more you can do about transportation. Like it's already very good and very clean. And, you know, it's a habit that's baked into everybody's life. It's not really going to change. You know, we're not really going to be building big bike lanes or whatever, like people in New York are talking about or people want in other countries. Um, there is this like weird obsession with going to work in Hong Kong. That I don't really understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like people, yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's just, yeah, people's homes are really small or it's just... You know, like in mm-hmm. Japan, where I, which I write about a lot, it really is like baked into the culture. Like 
oh, it's weird to like not be in an office or something like that. And that's really going to take like a long time to iron out, I think. But even before this pandemic, I've written a lot about how the government in Japan wanted people to um, work from home more, just generally improve efficiency, have happier workers, mm-hmm. reduce congestion on those trains in Tokyo that everyone's seen before um, as part of a broader sort of like work reform package. So with a lot of things, it's like a very wait and see thing in Japan where like change is glacial. So it's not, mm. yeah, you're not really seeing like a massive change, but you know, just the fact that I think big Japanese companies, you know, like Hitachi or NTT Docomo are, you know, talking about having institutionalized programs for work from home is a pretty bold start, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, I, I would be... Of of all the countries in Asia, you, you would expect it to happen, I suppose, slowest in in Japan. Um, do you do you expect, you know, I, I guess it's a difficult question to answer, but how much change do you expect there? Um, well, young Japanese people, I think, are sort of similar to young people everywhere else in that they like flexibility. And even, again, before this pandemic, they didn't really like that whole seniority and, like, working at the same company for your entire life sort of tradition that um, is pretty unique to Japan. So on at that younger age group, things are changing. But, you know, Japanese people I speak to work at sort of big old style companies are like, yeah, nothing's changed and it's not going to change as long as this sort of elderly or middle aged man is my boss. Like he's going to keep expecting us to come in. So I don't have huge hopes that it's going to change but you know japan is a lot of other things also changing that like immigration and just you know i think people generally feeling like do i really have to be in tokyo this place where everything is so centered on in japan you know people are asking those questions and but you know it's like hong kong again is so different and it's so small and compact like you know if you want to go to the office that's fine if you don't want to go that's also fine you don't really have to think that hard about these decisions i don't think mm. and what about travel i mean as business travel specifically is it do, do you expect i don't know these travel corridors are they going to come into play um are we going to have bubbles that include different countries or um um i mean i do miss my holidays i'm not gonna lie but i think like <laughs> sort of similar to the train travel boom in Europe, for example, like, do we really have to take this plane? Do I really have to go on this business trip? Do I have to go to this meeting in person? Like, I guess a reporting trip is sort of different, but, you know, with the traditional, like, oh, I have to go to Singapore to meet this board member or this client or something, is that going to change, for example, onboarding of new employees? Um, it's hard for me to, like, if I, if I was a company and I saw how much money you could save by not having business trips, it's hard to say, yeah, let's have all those business trips back and not continue using Skype or Zoom or whatever it was that we've saved so much money on doing in the last few months. Yeah, I, I wonder, though, from a, from a journalism perspective, which you mentioned, is it, is it possible to, to really report without being on the ground? It's super, super difficult. Like what I've done is, um, well, we're now owned by a Japanese company. So when I did a Japan story earlier about work, I roped in a colleague who was on the Japanese end of the business to help. But even then they couldn't go out. It was during, you know, a not great period of the coronavirus. And, you know, that person also didn't really just go want to stand around a train station or something. 
Um, so it is like a lot of, I guess, old school sort of looking at LinkedIn to find people and just messaging random people on Facebook and DMing people on Twitter, that kind of thing, and doing phone calls. It's a drag, but it's not impossible. I mean, for me, the biggest gap right now is really like China reporting, but that's like a different situation altogether that's not really got anything to do with the pandemic that's like the political situation where we have people kicked out and just losing really valuable experience and then not being able to come to Hong Kong and then making you realize that yeah that's how much closer we are to being like mainland China now this is a question I, I get a lot what how do you see the future of of journalism in Hong Kong um, and in particular, in terms of, um, I guess, the big foreign news organizations, of which Quartz is one, um, do you think they're reconsidering uh, their kind of base in this city? I think that if people didn't have a backup plan or are thinking about having one, then they're not really following the news closely enough. And the New York Times move to Korea should really be a wake up call to everybody, um, but especially for the top companies that are really in the firing line of the US-China relationship, so like the Wall Street Journal or um, AP or, you know, or maybe even Bloomberg, also an American company, like I think they really need to think quite hard about what they're going to do. And, you know, I think the New York Times, you know, they signal that they're doing it ahead of any incident forcing them to do so and signaling that, you know, we're cognizant of the risks and, you know, we have our staff safety and welfare in mind and you know we're giving them the option and you know I think they're rolling out the move you know within the next year it's not like a emergency last plane out of Saigon situation or something it's like a thoughtful mm. process I think that um, I mean it's been reported that you know Wall Street Journal also has has plans I mean I think everyone has plans I think what's the trigger I don't know everyone has a different threshold for what the trigger would be I think yeah I heard the Wall Street Journal has got um, Taipei as a backup plan um, but I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the only one they had um, but I'm, sh- I'm sure they do have some sort of, of provisions. At the same time though we've got this very kind of vibrant uh, local journalism scene in Hong Kong um, and I think that has really come to prominence over the last, uh, I mean probably since the 2014 uh, situation and of course over the last 12 months as well um, do you expect them to 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 see any any particular changes now I think they're a lot more exposed than people who have the protection either of being an employee of a big you know US or UK company and or are foreign nationals I think that mm. But, you know, you talk to them and you say, well, what are you going to do? And they say, well, the whole point is that you don't know what to do. Like, sort of the whole point of the law is that it's so vague that it keeps you guessing all the time. And, yeah, again, it's just impossible to advise someone. And even if you got legal advice, what what would they advise you to do that nobody really knows? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's quite a time to be alive. Isabella, I think I've taken up plenty of your time already, so thank you so much. Um, we will get try and get you on the podcast again. Maybe next time we'll talk about uh, how PR people can pitch you or not. Yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be very happy to talk about that, and I think that our coverage and the way that we think about stories is so 
different to what the traditional media companies do and I think PRs always mm-hmm. have difficulty on the other hand it's very obvious when somebody hasn't done their research and they're just you know sending mail merged emails to everybody and it should be clear by now what we cover what we're interested in um you know like we're not really going to be covering deals in the way that you know somebody at a trade publication or the FT or something would be so please don't contact me about those and yeah I think that I think Hong Kong is a little bit behind in that people are not paying so much attention to the digital journalists and that they're still thinking very much in terms of the prestige papers and that kind of thing mm. and it's going to be interesting I think when the SCMP goes behind a paywall mm-hmm. don't think anyone saw that coming don't think anyone sorry don't think anyone saw that coming as in the point of being owned by a very wealthy person well they made such a big deal about going free in the first place so anyway anyway that's a topic for another day thank you so much for your time um anyone wants to follow you on twitter it's at stegosaurus is that right yeah like the dinosaur but with my name Yes, which is S-T-E-G-E-R, um, Stegosaurus. In fact, I think you're at Stegosaurus in most places, right? Um, Real estate squatting situation a long time ago where it was just like something I wanted to register. Makes total sense. Um, okay, so take care. Uh, stay safe. Uh, try not to get too, too bored um, indoors. Thank you, everyone, for listening, um, and stay safe. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.